to Sacramento Central Seventh-day Adventist Church, and thank you for joining us for Central Study Hour. Wherever you are and however you are joining us, we are so glad you're here. We thank you for it, and we welcome you. To any visitors joining us in the sanctuary, welcome. To any visitors watching online, welcome. And I'm sure that we have some new viewers because we keep receiving requests from wonderful corners of the world. Like our first song this morning comes as a request from Mate Drobev in Sofia, Bulgaria. That's our first request from Bulgaria, amen. Um, and also Nicole Cantoon in San Diego, California. Let's sing hymn 318, Whiter Than Snow, the first and second verse. song this morning is hymn 523, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Let's sing the first and second verse.
it is enough that Jesus died and rose again for me. Praise God. If you have a special request, please visit us at our website, saccentral.org. Click on the contact us link. Make sure to tell us where you're from, um, and be sure to tell us your hymn number as well. We'll be happy to sing it with you in the coming Sabbaths. Our next song this morning, our final song, is hymn 651. This is a new song in the topical index of love in the home. Now, as we sing, I'd like you to listen to the verses because it has something for everyone, every part of the home. Let's sing the first, second, and third verse. for singing this song with us this morning, and we'll continue in this topical index in the coming Sabbaths. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your holy Sabbath day, and this morning, uh, we thank you so much for our parents, and thank you for our church family, Lord, that we can show love to one another because you showed it to us. Um, we ask that you study with us this morning, um, as we open your word, and just bring us all the blessings that you long to give us. Please bless, bless Pastor Chris. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Our lesson study this morning will be brought to us by Pastor Chris Buttering, our senior pastor at Sac Central Church. Thank you very much, choristers, and uh, happy Sabbath to everyone here. What a beautiful song that was. That was the first time I've sung that one as well. Um, what a great message. Um, we're talking about discipleship in today's lesson, and what greater uh, example of and demonstration of discipleship than what takes place in the home uh, under the loving tutelage of, of the parents, of mum and dad. Um, we'd like to uh, welcome you and those that are joining us as well. Glad you're tuning in. We want to make sure that you do call in for your free offer. It's offer number 21523. Don't forget to put a C in front of that for Central Study Hour. And uh, just call in to 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at saccentral.org. And um, this offer is for those in North American territories only, I'm afraid. But uh, those that are in this territory, feel free to, to grab. Those that are outside, you can still access this material by going to our website, saccentral.org. It's all there, or subscribing to our YouTube channel. It's all there as well. And um, so we're glad you're joining us. If you're tuning in from wherever you're tuning in from, here in the States, Canada, around the world, let us know how you're enjoying the programs and how they've been a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. Well, we're going to launch right in and uh, go right into our study. It's lesson number 10. And uh, really, as I mentioned, it's on discipleship. The title of the lesson <clears throat> is Following Jesus in Everyday Life. Following Jesus in Everyday Life. And of course, we're going through the book of Luke. The uh, memory text, it's found in Luke chapter 17, verse 5, and it says, the, the apostles said to the Lord, what? Increase our faith. Increase our faith. The, the assumption being that God has given us a measure of faith, but we're asking the Lord to increase that faith, you see. Um, have you ever met someone who claimed to be something but then acted another way? Have you ever encountered someone who contradicted what they said they believed? Uh, perhaps uh, think of a person who uh, is a huge fan of a certain sports team, for example, but uh, then turns on the team when they lose several games in a row. Bad sports, right? Think of a more serious problem. We often hear of, st of stories of women uh, who are abused by men who claim they love them. And today in the news, those uh, those uh, things are reversed. Men are being abused by the women that say they claim they love them. If one's actions contradict one's words, which is true? The words or the actions? Ah, you're, you're on the ball here. Matthew chapter 7, in verse 20, Jesus said, therefore by their fruits you will know them. You'll know them by their fruits. In Christ's eyes, it is our actions which speak to what we believe. Our actions determine who we're following, um, what, we're, what we're all about, rather than what we simply say. John chapter 8, verse 31, you can write it down. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And so to be a disciple of Jesus is to follow the words of Jesus. Not just simply say we do, but to actually follow the words of Jesus. I want to just read uh, here on, uh, on Sabbath afternoon's lesson. I like the way the author kind of summarizes 
and launches into the lesson. He says, though a great teacher, Jesus did not establish a school of theology or philosophy. His purpose was to seek and save that which was lost. We talked about that last week. He came to reveal the character of God, a revelation that culminated in the cross, where he not only showed humanity and unfallen worlds that God was re- what God was really like, but he also paid the penalty for sin so that human beings, despite their fallen nature, could be redeemed. In doing this, he also created a redeemed community, a community of those who, having been saved by his death, have chosen to model his life and teachings. The call to be part of this redeemed community is a call not to a preferred status in life, but to an absolute allegiance to the one who calls to Christ himself. What he says becomes the disciples' law of life. Did you catch that? I like the way he said that. What Jesus says becomes the law of the disciple of Jesus' life. What he desires becomes the disciples' sole purpose in life. No amount of outward goodness or doctrinal perfection can take the place of total allegiance to Christ and his will. And then he closes by saying, discipleship, which we owe exclusively to the indwelling Christ, makes certain imperative requirements. No competition and no substitutes are permitted. And so when we, when we accept Christ as our Savior, we also accept him as Lord. And what Jesus says and his desires for us, we embrace, we accept, and we follow on to know the word. That's what it means to abide in the word. We follow on to know the Lord. We do his will. And this is a work that is done in us through the working of the mighty power of the third, the per, third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. That's right. It's, uh, we let God work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, you see. Um, it was Karl Barth, he said this, these interesting words. He said, the word became flesh and then through theologians, it became words again. Jesus' life and ministry is to be imitated by the followers of Jesus. However, sometimes the followers of Jesus are more intent on professing and proclaiming what the life of a Christian ought to look like rather than focusing on living that life. That's what he means here. Theologians have taken the word made flesh and... Uh, and they've just become simple words again. Christ redeemed us to not speak a lot of good words, but to glorify the Father's name through good works. And I'm just, uh, it's a, my little paraphrase of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Or to good works. And in doing that, Matthew chapter 5, 16, when we, glor- we glorify the Father. If we let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works, we glorify God. So the call of a disciple is not to speak a lot of good words per se, although that is a part of being a disciple of Jesus, but more importantly to model and imitate the life of Jesus. Someone said Christian discipleship is the process by which disciples grow in, the, in Jesus Christ and are equipped by the Holy Spirit who resides in our hearts to overcome self, sin, and Satan, and become more Christ-like. Uh, I just condensed it to, to say discipleship is to walk and imitate, walk with and imitate Jesus. That's discipleship in a nutshell. So in light of that, let's go to Sunday's lesson, because that's what we're talking about, following Jesus in everyday life, walking with him. You know, it's interesting, if you look at the travel, uh, the, the places that Jesus walked, did Jesus walk alone? Many times he didn't. Uh, who were following him? 
his disciples, surely, and there were others, and uh, sometimes crowds uh, thronged, uh, followed Jesus. Uh, Jesus walked, and he had the, the close companionship of his disciples. To be a disciple is to walk with Jesus, and you could say, literally, the disciples of Jesus walked with Jesus. I mean, they, everywhere Jesus went, they went. Uh, I don't know how many miles, if it were to be calculated, how many miles Jesus actually walked, but we know that they walked with him for three and a half years. And, uh, and so his disciples walked with Jesus. If we're a disciple of Jesus, guess what we'll do? We'll walk where Jesus walked. We'll walk with Jesus as well. So a couple of things this lesson brings out, um, th this week's lesson brings out, and we're going to talk about those with reference to discipleship. The first one is, is Sunday's lessons. Sunday's lesson, flee from Pharisaism. Flee from Pharisaism. Uh, the Gospels apparently refer to uh, the Pharisees about 80 times, and 25 of those times is found in the Gospel according to Luke. And you want to turn there with me, because we're going to go right over to Luke here in just a few moments. Who were the Pharisees? Who were the Pharisees? Well, uh, the conquest of the ancient East by Alexander the Great was followed by a more permanent culture, cultural invasion by Greek language, uh, Greek culture, Greek religion, beliefs, and ideas. Eventually, a fellow by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, sought to Hellenize the Jews, but that met some stiff opposition. Later, there was a tendency among the upper crust of Jewish society, who primarily lived outside of Pal the Palestinian region, uh, to adopt Greek culture. But there were Jews inside, and a lot of the Jews within Judea, within Palestine, who clung tenaciously to the customs and traditions and religion of their forefathers. In opposition to this Greek influence, a conservative movement arose named uh, the Hasidim, which means the pious ones. Uh, the Pharisees, whose name simply means separatists, owed their origin to the Hasidim. And uh, they first appeared as a political party in the second century BC, about 120 BC. Now, someone has Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. We've got a couple of big readings today, right over here. Okay, fabulous. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. So thank you for, for hearing me here today. We've got quite a few big readings. We're going to come to you in just a, just a couple of moments. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. So the Pharisees became a political party in the second century BC. The Pharisees were the popular, they were the orthodox majority party in essence. And they were known for their rigid, and it was rigid, adherence to the law and, um, and also for their reluctance to be involved in civic duties. They feared that if they did, they'd become contaminated by society around them. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't integrated or didn't have a, a sway in society. They certainly did, but they didn't want to get involved in civic duties. They believed that if the Jews would rely on God, then God would work for his people and for their deliverance. So the Pharisees were students of the law, and as such, they were the party of the scribes, or they were the party of the theologians, and were popular in the days of Jesus, popular spiritual guides. Uh, and apparently, they were very successful in proselytizing in getting people over to join their point of view and their, their ideas, you see. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the Pharisees of Jesus' day. We have Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. Thank you. Luke 11, verses 37 to 54. 
And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms for such things as you have done. Indeed, all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. This you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, was who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to cut him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Good job, and thank you very much. Appreciate that. So Jesus was pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. You know, Jesus, uh, some of his hardest denunciations were against hypocrites, and that's who the Pharisees were. Being hypocritical is professing to be one thing and then secretly being another or living a life that is contrary to what you profess to be. And uh, that's what the Pharisees constituted, you see. Their, their, their uh, religion was a legalistic religion. And when we're talking about discipleship, we need to keep this in mind because there is a tendency for human beings to, uh, to, to, uh, to think that their best performance and their best obedience will merit them something when it comes to eternal life. And that's not the case. We live in a world that's performance-driven, and so it's very easy for us to slip into that. What we need to be careful of when we're dealing with discipleship here is your salvation, uh, your, your standing with God is not determined by, those, by your obedience, those things that you do, but by your faith in Jesus. Now, granted, your faith in Jesus will produce what? Will produce obedience. There's no doubt about that, loving obedience. But to, but to be meticulous and to, and to be rigid when it comes to the law of God in the, in the attempt to please God and to win His approval and to be saved at last... Um, uh, is a dangerous platform to stand on, a dangerous practice. Our faith is in Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves. No matter how much we obey, we cannot save ourselves. We must first be 
transformed by his grace. We must first be justified and forgiven, and then the Holy Spirit comes in and transforms and changes our lives. It is God that works in us, you see. So the religious leaders of that day had a very legalistic view uh, and practice of religion, one that says salvation comes by obedience to the law. Let me just ask this for the fun of it. Can one be saved without obedience, though? Ah, okay, good, good. We're not saved by keeping the law, but you cannot be saved without obedience. If God says, here, I want you to do this, and you know this is the thing to do, and you say, well, you know what? I think I know better. I'm not going to do that at this point, or I'm not going to do that ever. Can God take with him a heart that is opposed to his will and his, his law to heaven? It's going to be very hard for God to do that, right? A heart must be transformed. While we, obedience doesn't save us, one cannot be saved without obedience to the revealed and known will of God. So here in Luke chapter 11, uh, you can compare these verses, by the way, with Matthew chapter 23, very stern denunciation on the practices of the Pharisees. Now, we need to understand here, Jesus wasn't denouncing the Pharisees. He was denouncing their, their attitude and their teachings. Jesus loved the sinner, but he hated the sin because it is sin that separates us from God. And God, Jesus came to bring us into harmony with God, you see. And so he was denouncing their practices. This was three months before Jesus closed his ministry. And uh, there's probably a good reason why Jesus left some of the hardest criticism to the Pharisees just prior to the end of his ministry, rather than doing so earlier. This, uh, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives these woes in the Pharisees' home, but in Matthew chapter 23, he gives them in the outer court in the temple in Jerusalem. So what is Jesus' warning about? How is this same principle manifested today, and how can we avoid the same mistake that the Pharisees, the same mistakes the Pharisees uh, got involved in? This is, this is a joint call in, in Luke chapter 11. This is a joint call to avoid superficial religion that uh, relies on externals and to embrace true religion that doesn't just look good but has asked God to change the heart also. So these are the two things that, uh, that we can learn from, from Luke chapter 11 here and these verses, these, these woes on the Pharisees. A joint call to avoid superficial religion and relying on externals and embracing true religion that says, God, change my heart. A grace that works from the inside out, you see. So Jesus talks about uh, the cleaning vessels. Now, they weren't accusing Jesus here of not washing his hands per se. There were certain ceremonial cleansings that Jesus didn't participate in prior to, uh, prior to eating, and so they gave him a hard time. But Jesus in verse 39 says, look, uh, you make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Um, Jesus isn't referring necessarily to the habits of the Pharisees in cleaning cups, but he's referring to the habits of the Pharisees themselves. Uh, they were meticulous in keeping things clean. So Jesus wasn't giving them a hard time about that. They cleaned everything from the inside out, but they didn't apply that principle to their own lives. You'll be meticulous in taking that saucer or that cup and you'll clean and scrub it on the inside and the outside and yet you don't let God work on your hearts. Woe to you, Pharisees. They lived to be seen of men but didn't realize that God was looking at their lives, their hearts. Hypocritical motives prompted their outward piety. And then in verse 41, Jesus says, rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. Jesus seems to be suggesting that generosity toward the poor 
is a far better way of avoiding defilement than scrupulous ceremonial cleansing of the container to keep the food clean. So he's encouraging generosity toward the poor, and that's going to work a whole lot better than meticulously cleaning a, a dish. And then verse 42, he talks about tithing. But woe to the Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So the Jews, the Pharisees in particular, were meticulous. Uh, they gave meticulous care to giving and returning a tithe. Uh, it was a part of the Mosaic law. Uh, Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. They were to tithe. God's people were to tithe, as God's people today are to tithe. Now, Jesus wasn't, uh, wasn't removing the obligation for his people to tithe back then. Um, what Jesus was addressing here is that folk ought to give greater care to the way you treat other people. So you do all these little things, you're meticulous in your tithe keeping, but then you don't treat anyone really that well. You're, you're rude, you're obnoxious, uh, you don't care for the poor and the widows among you, and, uh, and so don't, don't, ex don't think that by doing these little things, by tithing on mint, anise, and cumin, that you're, uh, that you're in good standing with God, because by their fruits you will want know them. How do you treat others? How do you care for others? So Jesus said, you, you need to keep tithing, keep on tithing, but don't neglect the weightier matters of the law, love and justice and mercy. Do those things, but do these other things also, you see. Tithing is an important principle, but don't think just because, and this is it's a good point for us today, isn't it? Uh, we, we could think that the fact that we tithe um, gives us allowance to kind of fudge in some other areas with regard to how we treat other people. Well, you know, it's okay. I tithe. It's fine, you know. Hey, you, uh, you know, you offended me the way you spoke to me. I know I did, but, you know, I'm a good tithe payer, and it's going to be okay. God understands. Um, we could fall into the trap of being a Pharisee, couldn't we? We could very easily. Look at verse 52. This is, uh, this is stunning. We read this already. Verse 52, "'Woe to you lawyers!' For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You don't enter in yourselves and those who are entering it, uh, you've hindered. The key that opens the door to the knowledge of salvation, they've kept to themselves. They don't, they don't share it. They've hindered people. The religious leaders have made it impossible for the true in heart to find their way to salvation. In two areas. One, in making, one, in making religion a burden. And number two, by being a hypocritical example. Is it possible that we could lock up the kingdom of heaven to somebody else through the same practices? Could it be that God's people could potentially uh, throw away the key of the knowledge of salvation because, of we, because we make religion a massive burden, too big to carry, and by a hypocritical example? We could, couldn't we? They treated heaven, the Pharisees treated heaven as a club that only the elite could be a part of. Who is heaven open to? to all, to all, whosoever will, whosoever believes on Jesus shall have everlasting life. A wonderful, wonderful promise. While discipleship does indeed involve obeying God's will, we should never think that meticulous obedience might secure for us a place in heaven. True obedience comes from a heart that is being transformed by the grace of God. That is true discipleship. Letting God take our hearts, transform us, and lead us on, you see. And that's very important for us to know. Let's uh, jump over to Monday's lesson. Flee Pharisaism. And let's, at the same time, though, fear God. Discipleship is about fearing, fearing God.
fundamental to discipleship is fearing God. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The first angel's message in Revelation chapter 14 says what? Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him. To fear God, to fear God in this, in these con in this context does not mean to be afraid of Him, but rather to know that He is holy and to love and reverence and respect Him, to give Him our complete allegiance. So let's, uh, we're in Luke chapter 12. Let's take a look at some stories here, some uh, thoughts that Jesus shares. Uh, he shares a story in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 to 21. Someone's got that for us. Luke chapter, all the way over here. Okay, Luke chapter 6, 12, verses 16 to 21. We're going to come to you in just a moment. Look at Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. What Jesus is saying, Jesus is talking in hyperbole here, um, which is uh, stronger language to make a point. What Jesus is saying here, if you obey Christ, you might incur the wrath of a man. You might just incur the wrath of a man. But by denying Christ, you would then incur the wrath of God, or in essence, the judgment of God on sin. You've got to remember that the wrath of man and the wrath of God are two different things entirely. God's wrath is against what? People? No. It's against sin. It's against the enemy of souls, you see. And so, in other words, Jesus is saying, it is better to die and know that you will rise again than to die and not rise again. That's what he's saying. He's saying, fear him who has... Uh, who has in his hand the power to determine who will be saved and who will be lost. Ultimately, yes, we choose, and he will honor that choice. But God is the one that we ought to fear or reverence, respect, love, obey, you see. So Jesus is drawing a comparison. Don't fear someone who can kill your body. Rather, fear and reverence the one who loves you. Look, look at the following verses. We just read them. Uh, what about the sparrows who are sold? Does God forget them? No. What about the hair of your head? Now, some of us guys have a few less hairs that God has to number, but God still numbers the hairs on our head, doesn't he? Surely he does. Notice what it says. Therefore, do not what? Fear. What is Jesus talking about? Fear God, but don't fear? Yes, don't fear the one who loves you, the one who cares for even the sparrow, the one who counts the numbers, number of the hairs of your head because he loves you and he wants to save you and redeem you. But fear him in so much as respect and love him and honor him and give him your allegiance. It is far better, far better to fall into the hands of angry men than the hands of uh, angry God against sin, you see. God loves you and he wants us saved. Don't fear, but fear him, reverence him, love him. Don't be afraid of him, but love him. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12 just uh, real quickly, let's take a look here. Jesus said, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And if anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. 
Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Discipleship, according to these verses, involves bold confession that Jesus is Lord, irrespective of the circumstances, even if you're brought before magistrates and rulers, you see. The promise is given that the Holy Spirit, whom we do not push away, will give us the words to silence our accusers when we need them the most. So here's a terrific incentive to not throw in the towel when the going gets tough. God promises the presence of the, of the Holy Spirit who gives us words, who gives us wisdom, and gives us courage and strength at, the, uh, at those very important moments. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I will store all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Mm. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Thank you very much. So the rich man had a problem. Do you know what problem he had? He had an eye problem, didn't he? He had a big eye problem, there's no doubt about it. He thought everything revolved around him. Covetousness, yes, and greed were his problem. Now, if you know, it's, it's good for you to know the difference between hoarding and saving, isn't it? Is there a difference between hoarding and saving? There certainly is. What was the rich man doing here? He was hoarding for the sake of what? Of hoarding. To save is to save for emergencies and for those things that are needed, you see, in life. And that's okay to save. Uh, God invites us to be generous, but here this rich man was, was grasping, was greedy. Covetousness was his problem. True discipleship involves putting the kingdom of God first and not living for the present. That's the lesson here that we can learn from the words of Jesus. Um, you know, the blessings of giving and not hoarding are seen in, uh, in many people's lives. Uh, you may have experienced that yourself. You went from being selfish and grasping to being quite a giving person, and you've experienced blessing after blessing. You, uh, you recall uh, John D. Rockefeller, by the time, time he was 53, according to his story, his life was an absolute wreck. Uh, he just thought about his business and accumulating more and everything worried him and perplexed him and troubled him. There was no humor, there was no balance, there was no joy in his life. And then a transformation occurred. He determined to be a giver rather than an accumulator. He began to give away his millions, you see. And by the time, well, he actually lived to be about 98. At 53, he was destined to die very soon. But uh, because he had a change of heart and began, began to give, he lived longer and apparently lived pretty happy those years, you see, and realized that uh, success was not in gaining, but in giving, not in accumulating, but in sharing. And so discipleship involves putting the kingdom of God first and not necessarily living for the present, putting all of our trust and our wealth and everything into the, into the now, but investing in the things of, of eternity. Let's go over to Tuesday's lesson. Let's go over to Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 35 and through verse 40. Christian discipleship uh, is not a state of ease. 
Christian, Christian discipleship is not a state of ease, especially when we give consideration to the hour in which we live. Luke records the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 53. And by the way, they're comparable to Matthew's account in Matthew 24 and 25. These words deal with the issue of waiting for the return of Christ. And uh, interestingly enough, here in Luke chapter 12, this is the first time in Jesus' ministry that he publicly addresses his return. It's the first time he, he does that. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 40. And then someone has verses 42 to 48. Who has that? Right over here. Okay, we'll come to you in just a moment. So we're right looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 40. And it says, Let your waist or your loins, your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he shall return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those whose servants whom the master, when he comes, shall find what? Watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And, it, and if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch. Now, second watch is nine to midnight. The third watch is midnight to about three in the morning. If he comes at those late hours and finds them so, blessed are those servants. What are they blessed for? They're doing what? They're watching while they are waiting, you see. And that's very important. Let's continue reading. And so, uh, verse 39, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not all allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It wasn't too long ago that our, uh, that our youth pastor here had his car stolen. And he got it back. It was a blessing. It was an answer to prayer. His car stolen. Now, if our youth pastor had known that that car was going to be stolen at a particular hour of the morning, do you think he would have been prepared and watching and waiting for that to have happened? Surely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, no one's going to be staying up all night to watch their goods. No one's encouraging that. But Jesus' point is, if you know that a thief is going to come in and break in and steal something from you, and you know that, you're going to be ready. You're going to be watching. You're going to be waiting and ready with your baseball bat or something. You're going to be waiting. You're going to be watching. So Jesus addresses, addressing here the idea of watching while waiting for the Lord's return because we don't know the hour that he's going to return. The watching involves being aware of our own spiritual condition. Psalms 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So that's what the watching involves, our own spiritual condition and ensuring that our calling election is sure. It also involves knowing the times, knowing the times, knowing the hour in which we live. While we cannot know the exact day and hour, we can know that Jesus' coming is what? Is soon, is very near. That's exactly right. We can know that his coming is near. Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 48, Jesus next addresses the need to be busy working. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. 
And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to him much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Thank you very much. These are very strong words, aren't they? Jesus is inviting us to not just watch and to wait, but also to work, to work for the salvation of, of souls. Our lack of interest in this area may indicate that we believe Jesus is delaying his coming. That's what Jesus is saying here. We have no desire, no, no urgency about us in reaching others for the kingdom. Maybe we're thinking that Jesus' coming isn't so soon. The difference, this is, uh, this is different, however, from denying his coming. But those who have greater light, more will be required of them. That's what Jesus says. The only way to shake off any lethargy we might be experiencing is to spend quality time in the presence of Jesus, the one who loves others, and, and pray that that spirit rubs off on us as well, right? That's the only way that that lethargy can be shaken off. So discipleship involves being prepared, being watchful, waiting and working for the salvation of others while we're anticipating the return of Jesus. Let's go to Wednesday now. Let's talk about being a fruitful witness. Following on with that thought, Luke, in the book of Acts, records the words of Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses. He said that just after he said that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. Or those who will confirm those things that they have seen, heard, and experienced to others. That's what being a witness is. Confirming what you've seen, heard, experienced to others. Luke uses the word witness 13 times in the book of Acts. And Jesus' final commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, underscores the imperative that to present God, to represent God, and to testify of his saving grace to all. What is the commission of the church? To go make disciples. Our theme here this year is each one do what? Reach one. We're praying. We're saying, Lord, who is it? Can you use me to, to be a blessing to someone, to lead someone to the foot of the cross, to lead them to your truth, you see? Well, let's look at a couple of, uh, couple of uh, instances here in Luke chapter uh, eight. Someone's got Luke chapter 18, verses 24 to 30. Right here, Mike. Okay. I was wondering when we were going to get to you. Okay. Luke chapter 18, verses 24 to 30. But let's look at Luke chapter 8 first, verses 4 through 15. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. There's so many stories here that are presented and we don't have time to look at them all and, and thoughts and experiences. Here in, in Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15, essentially Jesus is sharing the parable of the sower that went out to sow uh, good seed. Some fell by the wayside in verse 5, it was trampled down, birds of the air devoured it. Verse 6, some fell on rocks, it soon sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Verse 7, some fell among thorns, the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Verse 8, but others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. Verse 11 tells us the, uh, and on, gives us the, uh, the, the explanation of the parable. The word or the seed that was sown was the word of God. And those that uh, uh, were receiving the word responded in four different ways. So there are three lessons we can learn from this parable. Number one, God desires his word to be shared. Amen? Truly. Number two, we cannot produce life, only God can do that. We're to share the word. God's power, uh, active power, regenerates lives and hearts. And number three, we're not responsible for the type of response given to the word that we share. We are only required to do our loving part. That's not just a casting the seed and saying, hey, God bless you, take it or leave it mentality. But we're not responsible for the response. 
God does works in the person's life in that area. Okay, so we're to share God's word. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 24 to 30. Thanks, Mike. And when Jesus saw that it became very sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all that followed you, all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in the present time and in the age to come eternal life. Thank you very much. Now, Matthew adds the words in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first shall be last. And then he goes on to share the parable of the 11th hour worker. And you remember that, that, that story. Folk came, they were hired by this individual. They agreed to a certain amount. And then uh, he kept hiring people throughout the day. And then there were people who came one hour prior to quitting time. And they were paid the same amount of those, as those who'd been working all day long. And Jesus had a point in that parable. The reward we receive, what is the reward we receive for serving Jesus? So there's rewards. Is, are, there, are there not rewards for serving Jesus? Surely. We receive the blessings uh, at hand in this life, which is the blessings of Christian fellowship and in the more except, uh, except, exceptional satisfaction of Christian service. Paul writes that he had nothing, but yet he possessed all things. Both the temporal and the eternal reward, and this is the lesson Jesus is driving at, uh, that God bestows is given not because of what we have done or how much we've put in, but because of His grace. It's a reward that is reckoned by grace. And this, the story of the 11th hour work and what Jesus is sharing here, truly there will be a reward, but the first shall be last. Be careful of our motivation for service here. Be careful as to why you're doing the things that you're doing. So Jesus invites us to uh, serve and with the encouragement that there are blessings and promises of reward. And then Luke chapter 19, we won't look at it, but here you have a similar parable to that of Matthew chapter 24, 25, verses 14 to 30, the parable of the talents. Here it's the parable of the minor, or a pound, or a hundred drachmas. A, hundred, a drachma is one piece of silver, so you can imagine how, uh, how costly 100 drachmas are, or a minor. The, the, the teaching is, the parable teaches that Christians have a God-given responsibility in investing their time, their talents, and their treasures in the service of God. The, the master left for a faraway country, gave certain things, miners, to his, uh, to his workers. He says, okay, I want you to invest. He came back, couple had, one had not. And that one received punishment. And so it's, it's imperative that God's people recognize their gifts, the spiritual gifts that he's, that he's given them and then to uh, invest those gifts, their talents, their, their treasures, their resources, their time in God's service. That's what the parable of the talents, the parable of the minor, teach us, to be sure that we are serving God with all of our hearts. Well, let's go to Thursday's lesson as we close our study together. Luke chapter 24 verses, Luke chapter 22 rather, verses 24 to 27. Let me read that for you. Luke chapter 22 verses 24 to 27. 
Jesus says, Now there were also, was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have, who have continued with me in my trials. And Jesus goes on to talk a little bit more about the upcoming trial that he's to endure. Uh, you can compare these verses with Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. While there is, a direct, in, while there is direct instruction in these verses given in these verses to the leaders of the church, there is also instruction for each of us with regard to how we view and how we treat one another in our associations here in God's uh, house in his church. So Jesus says, lordship, don't lord it over others. Uh, the earthly monarchs, they lorded over others with, with authority and with power. Uh, they, their earthly kingdoms function on the basis of power. But he says it is not to be so among you. Men in positions of authority tend to lord it over those under them, but in the church, power, position, talent, and education are to be devoted exclusively to serving others, not to be used as levers to dominate others. And that's the... That's the type of authority that Jesus is expressing in these verses. In Jesus, we see the example of true servant leadership. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So a call for leaders to be servant leaders. And if you're a ministry leader or leader in your home, God is calling you to be a servant leader. Uh, you can read uh, John chapter 13. As a matter of fact, someone's got Romans 12, verse 10. Who's got that, Ray? Okay, we're going to come right to you in just a moment. John 13, 13 through 16, Jesus uh, says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given an example that you should follow in my steps. So here is Jesus, Lord and Master, and yet what is he doing? Serving. Serving, you see. His power, his position, his talents, his education were funneled exclusively towards serving others, you see. Now, it's important to recognize in this discussion that in Jesus' teaching about servant leadership, Jesus doesn't obliterate gospel order and roles in the church, you see. His teaching is not about whether or not there should be leaders, because that's, that's a given. But rather, his teachings address what the characteristics of true Christ-centered leadership looks like. It is assumed that there is authority and corresponding submission, even in the church. But this authority is Christ-driven and uh, Christ-given, rather, and is love-driven. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul delineates an order in the home that asks for the husband to be the spiritual leader of the home, just as Christ leads his church. This is not a call to blind submission on the part of the wife or mother or a servile obedience, but voluntary, loving support to the, to the husband that is fueled by the husband who continually heaps, continually heaps honor, upon his wife, you see. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, Paul, writing about the qualifications of an elder in the church family, connects the loving leadership given in the home by the father to that given in the church by the elder. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Peter writes of elders being overseers. 
and encourages them to do so not as lords but as examples, you see. And so Jesus is not obliterating gospel order, authority and submission, not at all. But what he is, what he is teaching here is the characteristics of true, true servant leadership. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Thanks, Ray. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. Thank you very much. So submission and humility and honor and subjection are essential characteristics of the believer. All of us are to give preference to one another as instructed by the Word of God. There's a lot to, lot, so much to talk about. We've come to the end of our time here today. To be a Christian, in summary, means to be Christ-like. Isn't that right? Truly. To be a disciple of Jesus means to follow Him and obey Him, His will completely and wholeheartedly. It means belonging to Him fully, because if we're not His fully, then we're not His at all. So won't you continue to abide in His Word so that you might be His disciples indeed? Amen. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. And uh, don't forget to call in for your free offer as well. Offer number 21523. Put a C in front of that. Call 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at sexcentral.org. So glad you tuned in and joined us today. Mm -hmm.